Hi everyone, John Leahy here. Welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, February 3rd. Had a wonderful podcast this week. Had a chance to talk with a man who has refereed 1,010 National Hockey League games and also played 21 games in the National Hockey League with the Quebec Nordiques. A man who fought Terry O'Reilly, Stan Jonathan, and Al Secord in his NHL debut. My guest this week is the great Paul Stewart. And without any further ado, here is today's episode. Five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of Files from Leahy's Locker Room. I'm John Leahy. We are delighted to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. I'd like to thank our guest from last week, Sonny Watrous. Uh, Sonny, of course, is the color commentator for Providence Men's Hockey on the New England Sports Network as we finished up our series on uh, women in sportscasting. We're going to stay with hockey today. I'm very delighted to have as my guest a gentleman who has an illustrious career, 1,010 NHL games refereed, also played in the National Hockey League with the Quebec Nordiques in 1979 and 80, also a member of the United States Hockey Hall of Fame, class of 2018. My very special guest is Paul Stewart, and Paul, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to spend with us today. Anything is a respite from the snow today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. How much did you guys get over your way? Uh, I live now in Rentham, and I would think we're bordering on about a foot. Yeah, I'm a couple of towns over, so we're in the same boat. But uh, us hockey guys, we, we love the snow, right? Yeah, it's not so bad. And I just wish it was me sitting in Stowe, Vermont on my deck looking out over the mountain. But, uh, you know, case sera, sera. Off we go. Indeed. Well, Paul, uh, you know, you are also the author of a great book called You Want to Go, and I had a chance to uh, finish that book yesterday, and boy, what an outstanding read. I, I really, uh, a lot of that stuff resonated with me as I read the book, so I thought we'd just start by talking about, uh, you know, your background, and for you, really, athletics started with your grandfather, Bill Stewart Sr., who was an outstanding athlete, pitched in the in Worcester for the uh, Northeast League. He was a major league umpire for four World series worked johnny vandermeer's second no hitter and was the first ump to eject jackie robinson so what an illustrious career he had and what influence did he have on you well of course the aspect of his uh great athletic background really didn't resonate with me uh even until after he passed away in 1964 because to me he was just grampy he had a job he worked for tops bubble gum so at christmas we'd get a huge box of tops bubble gum and all the cards and we would see him at games that my dad would umpire and he'd be scouting he was scouting for the cleveland indians and then he was scouting for washington senators and he would sit there at yukon and uh say i think it's time for an ice cream and he'd peel off some money and i'd run out to center field to where the where the uh the homemade ice cream stand was at Yukon in Stores, Connecticut. And, you know, he was that type of guy at the Boston Arena. He would come to watch the hockey, and, we, you know, we would share French fries, and he'd say, oh, you put too much salt on him. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he also had a career, besides in baseball, as a NHL referee, and he did that in the winter, and he did the baseball in the summer, and then he took two years out of his uh, officiating and, and umpiring career to coach Chicago Blackhawks. And he was the general manager and coach. And he put a team together that 
beat Montreal and Toronto and won the Stanley Cup. With We're, nine Americans on the team, including a guy from Concord, Mass., named uh, Vic Heiliger, who, uh, whose brother Moose was in Easy Company, Band of Brothers. That's great stuff, Paul. And, of course, he was the first coach of the Chicago Blackhawks. They won the Cup in 37-38 with your grandfather. That's right. And what's interesting is that the owner of that team, Major McLaughlin, had... <laughs> Uh, a, a division in World War One, uh, the Blackhawk division, and when he bought the team and entered into the NHL, I think in 1924, he was married to a woman named Irene Castle, who was a famous uh, ballroom dancer, and his money came from coffee. He was a coffee magnate, and although he owned the Hawks, he didn't own Chicago Stadium, and that was owned by... Uh, the Norris family out of Detroit. Ironically, they own Detroit Red Wings. And as well, uh, the, the Wurtz family, uh, Bismarck Foods and, and Beverage. So lots of things happening in Chicago at that time. And of course, Al Capone was there. My dad ended up in, at Notre Dame and Al Capone's son went to Notre Dame under a, a different name. But, uh, it was interesting. My dad, went to Notre Dame because my grandmother, who was living in a Chicago hotel with my grandfather, wanted him to get a Catholic education, and Notre Dame was the closest place, and she wasn't willing to have him in Boston and her in Chicago. Uh, he was the only son, so he, he started, uh, he played football for Frank Leahy, and although he broke his leg and, and his career was pretty shot down from there, but he played baseball and started a hockey program on St. Mary's Lake. I sh I'm sure with, with hand-me-down Chicago Blackhawk equipment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, then it, then it was your dad who was a big influence as well. He was a PE and health coach at Boston English for 37 years. And, uh, you know, you touched on him uh, playing uh, football at Notre Dame. And so, uh, you know, he really also set the stage uh, as far as how to treat other people uh, with you, didn't he? I, I know that we were treated with lots of uh, affection and we were never denied. I didn't know I wasn't rich until I, I was caddying at Brookline Country Club one day and I saw a couple of my classmates sitting by the pool, the kids from Groton, and they were drinking lemonade and I was lugging two bags in 95 degree weather. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fact is that Wherever my dad went, he would say, "You you want to go," which is part partly explaining why Y A W A N N A G O is the title of my book. It's not just about fighting; it's it's about what my dad used to say to me, and I wanted the readers to want to go along as they read and and see what my life was like and what I had to do to get to where I've been. And my dad really was a fellow that earned a lot of respect. He took it upon himself to help kids all over. And it's interesting, I, I, I talk about one of the most uh, renowned people that he, he particularly was fond of and said of him that it was he was the best athlete my dad ever had was a fellow by the name of Willie McDonough, who ended up as an NHL, NFL football writer. He was at the Globe for many, many years. My dad drove him to school every day. And he and Bobby McCarthy and uh, Bobby Donovan. Uh, Bobby Donovan ended up in, with the uh, Electrical Union, and Bobby McCarthy ended up flying jets for the Marines, and then ended up as the commander of the of the of the base in Weymouth before it closed. And he was a football coach at Harvard. And you know, my dad was particularly proud. But their fourth friend was a kid that didn't go to English High. My dad liked him and got him into Notre Dame, and he was a basketball guy, which is another thing that you know we weren't particularly uh, uh, particularly well known for basketball in my house. We were we were sort of allergic to that thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his his dad passed away. This this young player's dad passed away, and my dad made sure that uh, his mother wasn't alone. So my dad took him to Providence College where he became a pretty good point guard and his name was Ray Flynn. And those types of things, I think, as the priest said at his funeral and there were 11 on the altar and 
uh, two rabbis and a, and a couple of ministers. We covered all bases. Uh, <laughs> my dad didn't walk into heaven, he leapt. And uh, anytime you do what he did or others do to help kids, you certainly uh, ensure a legacy that stays for a long time. And there was an interesting chance meeting you had uh, with Leonard Nimoy at Logan Airport as well. Uh, would you care to share that story? I was in line, in the first class line, flying to L.A. to do uh, a Kings and then San Jose and, and Ducks game. I, we used to make a run up and down the coast. And I turned and I, I felt someone behind me and I turned and it's the Dorchester in me, you know. And I turned <laughs> and I looked and I saw Leonard Nimoy and I recognized him and I of course, uh, out of respect for him, said, would you like to go ahead? And he said, no, no, no. I, I assume we're both going to L.A. And I said, yes, sir. I said, would you mind if I told you that every time my dad sees you on TV, he, he gives me a swat and says, now there's an English high kid that did well. <laughs> and, and Leonard Nimoy said, oh, yeah, well, who's your dad? I said, Bill Stewart. He goes, oh, Coach Stewart. Mm. He said, great guy. He said, does he tell you what a fantastic athlete I was? And I said, see, now you're testing me. <laughs> my, da my dad told me that you're a nice Jewish kid from Blue Hill Ave. Your dad was a barber. Uh, you showed up to class. You always had your uh, gym, gym suit on your, and, and you never were disrespectful, but you were barely adequate in track. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too he funny. He laughed and laughed, and then he took a card my dad was was around the clubhouse touring health-wise and uh he took a card and wrote a note it was always a pleasure leonard nimoy and uh that, that that's that's a standout moment my dad got a kick out of that one Absolutely. Now, we have to talk about uh, the Boston Arena. You know, uh, as the play-by-play -play announcer for Merrimack, I've been going to Matthews Arena for 16 years. It's one of truly the great buildings in hockey, but you have a long uh, relationship and history with Boston Arena. It started in 1958, and uh, I wonder if you could just uh, talk about your relationship and your feelings about uh, Boston Arena now, Matthews. Well, back in those days, the day after Thanksgiving, was the day that hockey tryouts started for the city schools and those schools in those days were runners up or champions in the state tournament and they were competing against Arlington and and uh, you know Melrose and, and Needham and all those other schools and then of course the city schools athletically started to go downhill a bit but when I was a boy the tryouts were there were 50, 60 kids trying out for the spots on the English high varsity. And it was always the day after Thanksgiving. And, of course, my dad was the football coach, and English played Latin at, at Harvard Stadium. And, you know, it was, a, it was a big weekend for us. Wednesday night, all the preparation, the turkey, and all of that, going into the oven and headed to Harvard. And then the next day, and my grandfather would come over for dinner. And, you know, it was a big thing and great memories. And then... Um, the next morning, my dad would go to, to the arena, and he said, would you like to start skating? And I said, yeah, and he, he grabbed my sister's white skates, and he said, well, well, you can start with these. And I I went to the skate shop, and I gave the fellow a dollar, and he sharpened the skates, and he sort of ground the picks off the front of the white figure skates that my sister had. And I tried them out, and I kept falling and getting up and falling and getting up. And my dad said, push and glide, push and glide, hold on to the boards and push and glide. And once I went once around the rink, that's when I decided at that age, and I feel sorry for others that have to take so long, I knew that that was what I wanted to do in my life, to, to skate and be a player. And from there, you know, eventually I got to move along, and not too long after my dad you know i was bugging him for boy skates and he said when you get to master those babies then we'll get you some and we had a rink in the backyard and weather was a lot different then it was colder and my dad would make the rink at two in the morning with the hot hose and i'd see him i'd look out the window and see him there well i went to the skate shop one day i used to help the guys sell french fries i used to help the fellas put the nets up I, I i used to sweep i did everything at the arena because i was there my dad was, was was not only 
coaching, but refereeing lots of games, high school and college. And I always wanted to be with my dad. And I went in the skate shop, and John Bishop, who who actually played for my dad and went to Northeastern, he was a goaltender. He said, uh, "My nephew's just just about your size, and and we're going to get him a pair of skates for Christmas. Maybe you should try these on." And I I tried them on, and I said, "Yeah, they fit." And he said, "Okay, that's good. Put them back in the box." And I ran upstairs go get some more french fries the guy that sold the french fries was a bookie he had two phones <laughs> next to the stand he used to take the numbers and i used to hand the, the fries out for a quarter <laughs> and, and then on christmas day you know we got all the things that everybody usually gets and scratchy sweaters and all that stuff from my aunt in california and trains and fort apache and all the stuff that that made our lives you know so much fun and my dad said, "There's one more under the tree there, just a little bit." Right behind the couch, and it was it was a box, and it said to Paul from Santa. Wow! I opened it up, and it was those skates. Wow! I tell that story because toward the end of his life, he died December sixth. Uh, toward the end of his life, I put up a tree. He and I sat in the den just before I, I headed out to Calgary and Edmonton to ref some games and uh, he died December 6th 87 and we were sitting in the den and I had just put up a little tree because you know it was the best we could do at the time and he was ill and we sat there with the lights on and we had a drink and we were listening to the music and, and he said to me what was your best Christmas ever and I said I think it was the year that I got those skates. And he said to me, yeah, that was my favorite too, except for this one. Wow. Wow. And it's kind of tough at times for me because I don't think everybody that would listen to this show has had as great a relationship with their parents, especially their dad, as I've had. And you know, it, it's such a high mark. I, I'm not always sure that I've I've hit the mark with my own boys, but you keep trying and you keep supporting them and you do the best you can. And those skates specifically, I mean, they became my passport to the world and they became the way I found my life. I was that little boy that went once around the arena and, and said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And so far, I have. I've yeah. got a bunch of other things too. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and to pay the bills. <laughs> absolutely, and that that was that came through loud and clear in the book. You know, the relationship with your dad, and, and certainly, I, I'd like to thank you for sharing that story. But uh, also, you know, you went to Groton, and, and then you played uh, at Penn. Uh, what was it like going to an Ivy League school? Well, I wanted to go to Groton because my dad used to take his teams there. He also took him to Lawrence Academy, and just the, the whole campus at Groton and the way that the people especially treated me, and I watched the way that they treated their players and how beautiful the school was, and Dr. Crocker, the second headmaster of the school, sat me down one day. I was the bat boy for my dad's team, and he said, what do you think of uh, Groton? And I said, this is a nice joint. <laughs> and he <laughs> laughed. <laughs> <laughs> too many people had ever called it a joint. <laughs> we were sitting on his back porch while the game was going on, drinking Coke out of a small fridge that he had there, and and eating butterscotch brownies. And he said, maybe you should think of applying. And, you know, that was like hitting the moon for me. I mean, I never thought I'd get there because I wasn't that type of, you know, I figured I'd go to English High and play for my dad, and that was that. But... They persisted in asking me to apply, and I took the tests, and I did okay, and well enough to get in and stay in and graduate. And then I had an opportunity to uh, play football at Lafayette. I was I was a pretty good football player. I, I was a, a real good baseball player, and I had an opportunity to, to play two sports. And I also got into BC, but. I wanted to go away. I had been away. I didn't want to surrender my my independence coming home. And uh, I held out. Bob Crocker 
was the assistant to Jack Kelly in 72. He didn't get the BU job uh, when Kelly left to go to the WHA and the Whalers. And he got the job at Penn. And he and my dad must have communicated because the next thing I knew, I was in a car in August driving to Penn for an interview. I got in at the last week of August and literally started school five days later. Wow. Home packed and, and went there. But I had always wanted to play Division One hockey. I had seen BU and Merrimack. Tom Lawler was a great fellow. And all those coaches, you know, Jeremiah at Dartmouth and Harkness at Cornell and Kelly at BU and BC. The two Kellys said, you know, I, I, I used to watch like Tim Sheehy play and, and all of those guys that, and Brown and Jordan and Sterling and DNB and, and Davenport and all. all you know, they had an influence on me. And, I, and Herb Wakabayashi, I mean, played on the UN line. I, I, I went to all the games in BC and Harvard. And so, you know, you look at these things and they influence you. And so it was in my dream to play in the WA, in the, in the, in the, in the college hockey and, and then go to the pros and play. Most kids would say, I want to play for the Red Sox or I want to play for the Patriots. Not me. I wanted to play in the NHL. So that was that. Was, in 1960 or 62, you take a little ridicule for saying things like that, especially if you're living south of the St. Lawrence River. So <coughs> I went to Penn, and it wasn't easy, but I played two sports. I had to work. You know, as I said, I, I, I didn't come from a family with a lot of means, and I had to work and, uh, you know, take student loans and, and do all the things I had to do. I painted all the seat numbers at Franklin Stadium, Franklin Field, 65,000 seats, one, 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 two, 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 all the way up, all the way down. Snap a line with a stencil and just you know, number the seats, clean toilets, paint, you name it. But I got an Ivy League education. Great. I played hockey and baseball. Great stuff, Paul. And then you know you had uh, you had some time in Binghamton where uh, you got to ride on what you call the Iron Lung, and you wound up uh, with with the Rangers in seventy seven, seventy eight. And John Ferguson put a put a call out. Um, Kurt Bennett of the Great Bennett family of Rhode Island uh, was playing for Atlanta, and Dave Maloney, a rookie, cross checked him, and. Bennett took two strides, turned, and, and Bennett was 6'6", and a black belt in karate, and he took one one or two strides, turned, and flipped, flung his glove off, and hit Maloney right in the kisser, and Madison Square Garden knocked it flat cold. Wow. And Fergie went on television. I was in Binghamton setting the record in the North American Hockey League the year that they filmed Slapshot, which I was in the movie, too, but... but I was sitting in a place with my teammates eating pizza and, and drinking a few beers and watching this game, and Fergie went on television after. He says, I'll find myself some tough guys. And I called <laughs> them the next day, <laughs> and, they, and they put me on their negotiation list, and uh, I got to training camp, and I played an exhibition game against the Flyers of all teams. And I, you know, in that, I sent a message back to Penn, because I didn't play very much at Penn. I, as I say, there weren't a lot of American guys playing and uh, certainly weren't a lot of American guys at Penn. And uh, so a lot of what happened to me happened because the, the, the stars were in line, and I went to the North American League, went to Binghamton, and I, uh, Bobby Kelly from the Flyers, they used to practice in our rink, said to me, pick the worst team in the worst league and ask for a tryout. And I, I got a $14 bus ticket, but on the bus at Christmas, uh, Christmas time and stepped off the bus and made him try out and it's interesting because uh, Jake Danby and Sterling and uh, and Gary Jakewith from UNH and Richie Hart from BC there were a lot of guys with affiliation to Boston and they knew me and they knew I was tough right. so they, they signed me and as I say I had 44 majors in fighting that year in 46 games Wow. and that that set a record that still stands in Binghamton. <laughs> Interesting. And yeah. 
and we have we have a common we have a couple of common connections but the first common connection i think we should mention is bill gilligan who uh, you know very well and i worked with at merrimack bill was an assistant coach there under uh, mark dennehy but uh, i'm sure you have some great bill gilligan stories well it's interesting because i was on facebook last night and it was late it was snowing and somebody in the wha uh, club asked uh, who are the toughest guys you ever fought and uh, you know I, I named you know Jack Carlson and I named Wally Weir and I named uh, uh, Kim Claxon and Semenko and different guys like that and then I put and Bill Gilligan who was my roommate <laughs> we, I remember once we had a fight at practice uh, he, he asked me for some water and we were rooming together we had a shared an apartment and he went to Brown and uh good guy and and a lot of people oftentimes ask me from my experience who who are the toughest guys you ever saw and they're expecting me to say Clark Gillies and Dave Schultz and Terry O'Reilly and all that and there's no doubt those guys are tough but some of the toughest guys I ever played against or with were the guys that weren't fighting they were guys like Joe Sackick and they were guys like Theo Fleury and they were you know, especially, um, you know, Rick Middleton was a tough guy because they, they never shied away from going to the holes. They went in, the, they fought the battles, they went in the slot, they, they, they made their moves, and they, you know, they played the game whole 100%. I put Billy Gilligan in that group because he wasn't a big guy. Yeah. And, and one day at practice, I, I was in a mood or something, and he, I had the water bottle, we were just done sprints, and... He said, give me the water, and I squirted him in the face, and he dropped the gloves, and he started fighting me. First of all, I didn't want to fight him, but so we fought, and he, and he got the better of me. Let me put it that way. Wow, okay. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I sort of, you know, I didn't want to hit him, because I didn't want to hurt him, because I liked him. Yeah. And, and his sister was the uh, office manager for Dr. English, who was the orthopedic surgeon who took care of me for 30 years. And, uh, and of course, his brother Mike was, was the coach at, at UVM. And, you know, it's a small world, the hockey world. Uh, you, don't, you don't go too far with a can of paint without hitting somebody you know. And so <laughs> I come off the rink. The coach made me stay out. I, I come off the rink. I said to the trainer, Tim Ringler, uh, where's Gilly? Now, he told me to tell you to go screw yourself. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? I said, that's fine, but we're at the practice rink, which is like 12 miles out of town. And he and I drove here together. And we didn't have cell phones back in that day. So I had to wait for him to get home. I had to call from a pay phone. I said to him, Gilly, come on. Come get me. So we did. We went out for lunch, had a few beers, and that was that. I always laugh about that because a week later, we had Whitey Stapleton on our team, Pat Stapleton. Yep. And he, he had been the coach in Chicago, and he had been in Indianapolis as the player coach. And uh, he was a good fella, and he was playing on our team in Cincinnati. And he, they had a guy named Kim Claxon. And Claxon wasn't, he was like Stan Jonathan, you know, thick. Heavy, heavy puncher. He could hurt, hit you and hurt you with a punch. And he challenged me in Winnipeg. Now, Gilly wasn't at the game. He was sick. He was in the hotel. And uh, Whitey went back after the game, after I fought Claxon. And he said to Gilly, did you fight Stu the other day? He said, yeah. He says, I wouldn't do that again. Because <laughs> I, in my entire two years in the WHA against Winnipeg, I only played that one game. The rest of the time I dressed and sat on the end of the bench because they had Hedberg and Nielsen and, and uh, Schoberg and all those fellows, Bobby Hull. And, you know, they played the game without having to fight. They played with, they played the modern NHL game that we see now, speed and skill and all those things. And uh, teams like Cincinnati had me and they had Claxon and Winnipeg and, you know, Semenko and Edmonton just to keep an eye on the, on the, on the star players. But we had Fatorik and Jamie Hislop and uh, Rick Dudley. And we had some guys who could really play well. We had Mark Messier. So, you know, we... We probably, if we had gone to the NHL, done pretty well for ourselves. 
Indeed. Now, speaking of the NHL, Paul, I have to I have to relay this uh, anecdote here, the story, if you will. Uh, you were playing for Quebec at the time, and it was your first NHL game. You took Ontario Riley, Stan Jonathan, and Al Secord in your debut. But what I remember about that game is uh, you were in the penalty box, and the TV cameras kind of worked their way over to you, and you gave a wave from the penalty box. And I remember that because I watched that game on TV 38 with Fred Cusick, and I believe it was uh, John Pearson in the booth at that time, but I remember that wave uh, like it was yesterday, and there's a story behind that wave as well. Well, I had played, as I say, in the WHA, and I bought a house in on the Cape, and I had played a little bit for John Cunniff down there in the Cape Cod Coliseum, which eventually uh, Vince McMahon, the wrestling guy, bought, turned it into a, a not only a hockey rink, but a gymnasium for his wrestling guys. And it was the first headquarters for the WWF back in those days. And we met all those guys. But along my street, because um, I would train, uh, I used to, I had a net and pucks and, you know, a tennis ball. And then in my garage, you know, I'd lift the garage door up and I had a heavy bag and speed bag and I had weights and, you know, all the things that you need to train. And I'd jump rope and do all the things that I had to do, like Rocky did in the movies. And the kids would come by, the local kids, and of course, one after the other, and the word spread, and they would come, and, you know, I would give them something to drink, and they would sit there, and they'd try to hit the heavy bag. I'd show them how, and hit the speed bag, and show them how, and then we might have a road hockey game, and playing with the tennis ball. And the kids would come, and it was warm, and I noticed this one particular kid, he, he lived about three houses away, uh, Christus Caldus, and yep. he, he, he got tired, and he would sit, and one day I said to his sister Mary, I, I see Christus is a little tired these days, what's going on? She said, oh, he has leukemia, and uh, it didn't look good for him, so... I went and sat with him one day. We were just, you know, shooting the breeze because he would come up and sit on my back porch, and you know, he was just one hockey player to another. Yeah. And he was a little, he was a little hockey player too. So I said to him one day, "So, what do you want to do with yourself?" He says, "I want to play in the National Hockey League." Sort of sounded like something that I would have said. Right. And of course, his sister is sitting there and the parents they were, they were the nicest people the father was a plasterer the mother worked domestic work and I said how's it looking and, you know that you could see it in their faces it wasn't too good for Christmas so what I did was I called all my friends that played pro hockey and I called Eddie Cheek when they ran the Falmouth Rink it was the only place that had ice in the summers on the Cape yeah. and, and Eddie Cheek when gave me an hour of ice and Nicky Fatiu, and Hedberg, and Nielsen, and Wayne Thomas, and Jimmy Troy, and uh, Paul Moore, and a whole bunch of guys that played pro came out. And uh, we had a game, and Christus played. Now, some people would say, oh, I was like Make-A-Wish. I didn't know about that. Right. I just, I just knew it as one hockey player helping another. Great story. I went to the Mass General the night before I played at the Boston Garden against the Bruins, and he was there, and he was sick. And I said to him, well, tomorrow night, I'll wave to you. Right. And, and I did. And then about three weeks later, I went to his funeral. And uh, I always feel tough about that kid, you know. That's why, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm supposed to be a real tough guy, and Maybe I am, but things like that sort of get to me a little bit. Absolutely. And uh, I remember that day like it was yesterday. But uh, you went from uh, being a player to a referee. You transitioned into the referee game after, after your NHL career ended. And uh, you went through kind of a, a tough period b between uh, the time when, you're, when your career ended and transitioning into refereeing. But you knew you wanted to get back in the game. I really didn't know. I was 
and you go through all sorts of different things that are human, and including drinking. I didn't do drugs, but I, I, I started to, you know, I got out of shape, and I just, I lost my pride. And I think more importantly, and it's something I talk to people about, never lose hope. Because when you have no hope, and you have nothing perhaps to shoot for, a goal, that, that you know, you're, you're pretty well on a downward spiral that's not going to be good. And I was there, and I thought about not surviving and taking my own life. I did. And I, I got past that because my high school coach and his wife took me to a Bruins game. And then I stayed at their house. Absolutely, and you know, an interesting story. You you did your first uh, NHL game at the Boston Garden, and you wound up uh, disallowing a Bruins goal in that game. I was sitting in the, you know, like every, everything else, when you're going through. I was working the American Hockey League, and I had worked for the Western Junior, the Ontario Junior, the Eastern Junior, the North American League, the Atlantic Coast League. I, I worked the IHL, the American League. Worked all these leagues, and I was I used to go to the NHL games and sit with the supervisor, John McCauley, God rest his soul, Wes's dad, and sit and pick his brain. And what about this? What about that? Positioning and all the different nuances that you have to know. And it was March 26th, end of the season, and Montreal was at Boston, and Dave Newell was working with Stickle and Hasseltine. Yep, and. Um, the, the Newell, uh, the side stanchion right by the Montreal bench on the opposite side of the Bruins, uh, w wasn't wrapped. And uh, the, the player turned and took Newell, who was not a big guy, up into the boards and he broke his ribs. And I'm sitting in the press box eating popcorn fighting Macaulay for the box for the for the tub of popcorn <laughs> <laughs> and Stickle leans he's got his they're both kneeling down Alcetan and Stickle kneeling down over Newell and the trainers out there and and he looks up at Macaulay and he shakes his head and he points to his ribs and makes the broken signal mm. and Macaulay touched my hand and I looked at him and he said go get dressed right. I had never worked in the NHL yep but I had been on that ice, 
And I wasn't nervous. And I, I, I sprinted downstairs, and I knew it was in the dressing room. His ribs weren't broken on the ice. They broke when I slammed the door into him. <laughs> 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 Bruins dressing room for the referees was like about as big as a phone booth. Right. And um, I got dressed in such a hurry, I forgot to tape my, my, my pads to my shin pads to my uh, skates. And I went out, and I took two laps, and I went over to the bench, and nobody was sitting with Bork, and, and uh, nobody leaned over. He says, it took you long enough to get here. I said, yeah, about five years. <laughs> <laughs> and they dropped the puck, and everything went along great. And Patrick Waz playing, he's a rookie. And Casper um, corralled the puck, and he took a shot, and... Did his butterfly, and they had the Montreal sweaters when the crimson red. When they get wet, they they sort of get dark. Yeah. And he he snapped his hand on his on his armpit, and I thought he had the puck, and I couldn't see it. And I was like ten feet from the net. I was in pretty good position. Turned out I wasn't in very good position. And Courtnall came in. The puck was lying between Waz pads, right on the line. Yep. And. I blew the whistle, and within a tenth of a second, Courtnall tapped it in. And I and Wild looked at me. He says, "You blew the whistle." I said, "Yeah, I know." And I stood up and I waved the goal off, and I pointed to my whistle. And of course, um, Bork skated over and said to me, "You know that was a bad call." I said, "It's a funny thing, Ray. When I made the call, it was really good." <laughs> he said. Do you want to go talk to Butch? Butch Goring was the coach. And uh, I, I I just, I was standing in my place, my two feet square on the ground, and I looked around Bork, and I, I see Goring standing in the doorway, and his face is, you know, blonde hair with the face red as red, and two, two big veins sticking out of his neck, like Maine lobsters. <laughs> and I said, nah, maybe we'll just drop the puck, and I'll talk to him later. <laughs> and... <laughs> We're talking with Paul Stewart. He is the author of You Want to Go, former NHL referee and former NHL player. Uh, Paul, you then got a, uh, a a cancer diagnosis, which turned out to be the fight of your life, and it was your wife, actually, that alerted you to the symptoms, and you got a lot of help from both Gary Bettman and uh, a fellow by the name of Johnny Olson during that time, didn't you? Yes. Johnny Olson was a kid that went, it was from Canton, and he went to Framingham State. And I met him during that transition between playing and ref and I was selling cars. And he wanted to interview me about, he was doing journalism classes at Framingham State, and he wanted to interview me about, you know, fighting and toughness and, and violence in the NHL. So he and I became friendly. And it's ironic that we became, you know, I was certainly going to do the interview with him and give him all the information he needed. 
the Olympics in Nagano, and the U.S. sent the uh, their team and and all the players and the Can Canadians and they all sent their players. And their best players were obviously NHL guys. And the, the NHL sent a bunch of referees. My wife was eight and a half months pregnant. Wow. And and I I, I worked the All Star game that year in Vancouver, but I moved along and took the two weeks off to be home because the estimation was that she was going to have the baby at that point. And one morning, I was sort of dozing, and it was 7.38, and the Today Show was on, Katie Couric, and, and she was on talking about the symptoms of colon cancer and how her husband, Jay Monaghan, had just passed away from it. And he was like 42, and she was... You know, a young mother, besides being a famous television and news reporter, and she bravely stood there and pointed out all of the symptoms. And my wife slapped me and said, "Hey, you! You better get up. You better call the doctor. You've got all those symptoms." And I did. I had I had bleeding, and I had fatigue, and I had upset stomach, and I had all sorts of. Uh, GI problems, and it was interesting because I said, "Yeah, I'll call tomorrow." She goes, "No, no, I call right now." Yeah. And I called, and I got in, and between my colon and my prostate, they weren't sure where. They knew I had cancer because they ran all sorts of blood tests, and I came back as highly anemic with a high white cell count and all these things. And they said to me, "We're fairly certain you have cancer." Uh, Gary Kearney, Dr. Gary Kearney, and he said, uh, but you need to see Sue Kelly, who's a gastroenterologist, and I went up to the Baptist and had the colonoscopy, and and uh, they came back with, you know, you've got colon cancer, and they had thought prostate as well. Well, it was, it was the end of February, when can we do the operation, and well, you've, you know, you had the biopsies and you've had this and that, and we need you to uh, heal up, so probably six weeks. I said, well, the playoffs start in a month. Can I work? Yeah, I said, you know, if I don't make it, the doctor looked at me and said, I don't think you're going to make it to Christmas. Wow. He said, if I were you, I'd go home and get your paperwork in order. Hmm. I said to him, well, I think you should keep this between us because my son was born at midnight last night. And uh, I have a young wife and I have this little boy and, you know, this would be pretty tough. My mother-in-law is flying in from Minnesota. You know, I called my sister. She was a nurse. And I went over to Al Thomas's and he was the funeral director in Milton. I made my plans. I went to St. Joseph's and bought the plot next to my grandfather. I went to see Billy Oates, who was my financial advisor, and I went to see Billy Garrahan, who was my lawyer. And I went to see Mark Lutke, who was my accountant, and I got everything squared away, and I went back to the doctors, and I said, maybe we should, I got everything done, maybe we should try to do something to fight this battle. Mm -hmm. And they said, uh, well, we're going to need surgery and, and likely radiation and chemo, and turned out that everything that they said was true. I finished the playoffs and uh, came home and had the operation. I never told anybody that I was sick. And the, the, the linesman, I think, Jerry Gauthier, I went in the bathroom one time and I went and I guess, you know, he saw some remnants and it was blood. And he said, what's wrong with you? I said, oh, I have a hemorrhoid, you know. So it turned out that when I had the surgery, and they started the chemo. They they told me, oh, by the way, you have liver cancer too. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, and it's easy to laugh now, but they said the only way you're going to survive is if we we really douse you with chemo. And they put a port in my chest, and I carried a bag of chemo. And every thirty seconds, I I heard a zip and zip, and a shot of chemo went into the tube and up into my heart. And went 
through my body and it was tough and it was debilitating and every Tuesday I'd go and get a new bag of chemo and get flushed out I bring my little boy with me to Plymouth it was Kansas Center in Boston but they had a little satellite office and in the meantime lo and behold Johnny Olson my friend from Framingham State who did his college paper on NHL stuff violence and fighting he owned a gymnasium and he came by the house one day and I was on the back porch and not too good and and he said we're gonna help you every day he came to my house and got me out of bed and took me to the gym and helped me overcome the debilitating effects of that chemo and then finally uh, I was playing in a charity softball game. I couldn't go out in the sun because of the chemo, but I, if I wore long sleeves and a hat and everything, because the chemo is affected by the sun. Ray Bork, he sort of gave me a hug and pressed the catheter into my chest, and I was like, oh, my God. It was, and I had infections, and it was, it was a long summer. And finally, you know, we're about a month before training camp and I'm supposed to have my golf tournament. I had to call Willie McDonough who was the chairman and tell him where we were going to have it and he said why is that and I finally had to admit that I was sick and I hadn't told the NHL and he said well you should call the NHL first so I called my immediate supervisor told him and five minutes later the phone rang and it was Bettman and the world thinks that perhaps he's, you know obviously I have a contract well he's going to take care of me he said to me, how's it look? I said, not too good. He said, if you don't make it, we'll take care of your family. Mm. And, you know, that goes beyond hockey. It's man-to-man stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, people say, you know, and I've had my moments with Gary, and we've, we've had our disagreements and all the different things, but that's, that's just, you know, you know, recipe stuff, you know, two eggs versus three or whatever, you know, baking a cake. But when it comes down to it, you know, he's a he's like Harry Sinnon. He's a, he's got the game, the good of the game at heart. And look at what he's done. How many kids are playing now and how many kids are having opportunities. And the Willie O'Ree and the minority hockey and all that other stuff. So I, I, give, I give him a lot of credit on the surface for what he's done as the commissioner. But on the, on, on the human part, I'll never forget what he did for me. And Bill Daly, too. You know, they, they just they just stood up for me. And that that was uh, quite, quite life-saving mentally for me. Very heartwarming. Well, Paul, we're, we're up against the clock. I just want to touch on one more thing before we wrap up. Uh, we also have a second uh, connection, a mutual connection, a gentleman by the name of Lenny Intrevisato, who... Uh, I graduated high school with back at Stoughton High in 1983, and I know uh, you you also know Lenny quite well as he's battling cancer as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, you know, you push your golf your cart down the uh, down the aisle at, at, at the Stop and Shop or the Star Market, and boom, you run into people. And I saw Lenny. Lenny uh, and I worked together, and he's a good fellow. And he's been battling for a while, and I know Dr. Kearney helped him, too. So, you know, when you talk to him, please send my best. And as I say, all of the things that are happening now with what's happening in our lives, you know, don't give up hope. We're We're going to survive. We're going to prosper. We're going to win. And it, we win because we join together and we're not divisive. And it's just like my relationship with Billy Gilligan. <laughs> you have a little friction now and then, but deep down there's great respect. It's like what you said, you know, friction is part of hockey, right? I love, I love friction, you know? <laughs> and, it, and it's funny because, uh, you know, I talk, you know how everybody now, they give, Everybody, the, the fist pump, or they, or they, or they bump elbows, and people elbow me. And I'll say, "Is that the best you got?" I mean, I got hit by Gordy Howe one night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what was it like? Quickly, what was it like playing against Gordy Howe? Well, first, 
shift, I leaned over and I said to him, you know, I, I named my dog after you when I was a kid. And he's 50, and I'm skating after him, and I'm 25. And I'm trying to hook him, and he, he throws a Mr. Miyagi elbow around his back and hits me right in the side of the temple. I wake up in the dressing room, and, and the trainer for us, who was also the, the Bengals trainer, uh, said, Ooh, how you doing, Stu? I said, mm, a little foggy. I said, what happened? He goes, oh, Gordy got you with an elbow. <laughs> so, you know, the smell and salts and everything back then, they didn't have any of these protocols. How do you feel? How many fingers do I have up? See you later. <laughs> Get back out there. I line up next to Howe in the second period. I said, hey, that was a great elbow you hit me with. He said, welcome to the league, kid. I said, uh, do you remember that dog I was telling you about? And he looked at me, and I said, I'm going home and choke the bat. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the funny part is, we played against each other a couple more years, WHA, and then one year in the NHL, and then I moved along to officiating. And I would see Mark, and I would see Marty, and, and I would see Gordy here and there, and Colleen. And Gordy retired from the Whalers. And who do you think they invited to be the Toastmaster at his retirement dinner? Yeah, that was you. That was me. <laughs> and I just look at it, and I, I stand up, and I, I say, you know, the guy had a thousand goals, and I had two. So together, we were very productive. <laughs> We'd have made a great line. <laughs> Absolutely. Well... Paul, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending some time with us today. I know our audience is going to love it. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to follow you. Your book is uh, You Want to Go, and I encourage everyone to read it. And uh, thanks again, Paul. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and there's a children's book as well that the profits go to uh, the inner city diversity hockey. Uh, skates were so important to me. And a profit for a children's book, it's a Christmas book. It's about my first pair of skates. Uh, it goes to Willie O'Ree and uh, Snyder Hockey and, and uh, Score Boston and, uh, and Ice Hockey in Harlem. And, and it's called The Magical Christmas for Paul Stewart. And that's on Amazon. And, you know, if you get that book and read it to your son or grandson or children or your daughter, guess what? You've helped another kid maybe get a pair of skates and find his way or her way along. Well, we encourage everyone to look into that. Paul, again, thanks so much for being with us, and I truly appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that's Paul Stewart, former NHL player and referee, and next week we'll be joined by Tim Calderwood as we talk baseball, the voice of the Schomburg Boomers of the Frontier League. You've been listening to Leahy's Locker Room, files from Leahy's Locker Room, and we will see you next week. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, Rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.